you've ever lost something of value, you know the emotion and energy you go through to retrieve it. Cindy and I have been married just about a, maybe a little over a year, year and a half, and um, she lost the diamond from her wedding ring. And uh, we had this, uh, I picked out this diamond and had a friend make this custom setting for her 32 years ago now. And um, it was a very expensive diamond and it was gone. And of course she's in a panic and I'm in a greater panic. And the next day at work, a woman found it on the floor of the restroom where she worked. What are the chances of such a thing? And so you rejoice that you found this diamond that you lost. I had, was given a pen when I finished graduate school by some friends, a very expensive pen, and I had it for 15 years, and one day it was gone. And I tore through suits and jackets and clothes and dry cleaning and briefcases and stuff in my office, and I never found that pen. Now since then, uh, very nice people have given me six very expensive pens, so I'm not, I'm not like fishing for pens. Um, that's not the point here. I've got very expensive pens that are a hassle to take care of. But I remember losing that expensive pen and what it felt like. You turn the house upside down looking for it. A young child loses a puppy or a kitten. My uh, oldest daughter had prayed for a cat. Don't you hate that? <laughs> and she prayed dutifully for a cat. And I hate cats. I think they are from the pit. Uh, sorry. And um, so she prays for a cat. And one day a stray cat appears at our front door. And it's a little tiny kitten, no less. So this must be an answer to prayer. I mean, how do you tell your child, sorry, this isn't God's will for you to have a cat because they're evil. No, it comes to the front door. And to make it worse, it's black cat. So she names the cat and they feed the cat. And I come home from a trip and the cat's gone. And my little daughter is crushed and in tears and crying. And I am out in the pouring down rain for an hour and a half walking around looking for this stupid cat because my daughter's life has ended. I've got to find her little cat. A parent loses sight of a child in a crowd. And the adrenaline kicks in and the blood drains out of your head and your hands and you go into a mode of search. Where is my son? Where is my daughter? Nothing matters. You don't care about your purse, your wallet, your keys, your car. You were on a mode to find your child who's lost, who's playing with some toy or hiding in the, in the clothes racks or whatever it may be, uh, lest he or she might have been taken. When Jesus Christ uses a parable, he speaks to everyone so that they all can have ears to understand. Remember when we study any parable, everybody got it. And the challenge we have in the time we live is to take the information from that first century and see it through their eyes, hear it through their ears, understand how they would have experienced and understood the lessons, and then apply it, of course, to our life in similar fashion. We are in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is sometimes called the chapter of the losts, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. God has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And everybody understands when you lose something, you tear up your house looking for it. 
When you lose a pet, you go on a search to find the pet. When you lose a child, you do anything to find and retrieve this child of yours. Everybody would get this. Last weekend, if you were not with us, I talked about the word prodigal. It's a Latin Vulgate term. It's not in your Bible. And the word prodigal means a squanderer or someone who's wasted something. And more technically, the story should, it's a good word, but more technically, it should be the prodigals. Or a father with two prodigals. That's the story, as we'll see today. Now, I want to show you a chiasm or a chiasmus, depending on how you were trained and where you grew up, what you might have pronounced. I talk about these things a lot, and I don't want to presume it makes sense to everyone, because just like music is a language, math is a language, engineers have a language, uh, people who are athletic have a language, uh, there is a a texture and depth of your Bible that 90% of the population won't see because we won't study at that level. That's really Lloyd, Bill, and my job in a sense. But I want, to, I want you to see something because it's remarkable. Number one, the book of Luke is chock full of these. This is just one, and I want to show it to you because it is so poignant. Now, you've heard me talk many times about A and A prime. In this case, we've enumerated one and one prime. You see, so you have one and one prime at the bottom, two two prime at the bottom. Let me just walk you through the story beginning at the top. A son is lost, give me my share. Two, goods wasted in extravagant living. Three, everything's lost. He spent it all and he began to be in want. Four, the great sin. He's feeding pigs for Gentiles. Remember, the Jew would feel there's nothing more lowly and debased than being with pigs, much less feeding pigs. Five, total rejection. No one is giving him anything. Now, six, a change of mind. He came to his senses. Remember we looked at last week? He came to his senses. What am I doing here? Six prime begins the parallels. These are called inverted parallels. The initial repentance. Make me a servant. I'll come work for you. I, I, I don't have a right to be a son, but I'll come and work like a hired hand. Five prime. Total acceptance. The father runs and embraces his son and kisses him for prime. The great repentance. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as a hired hand. Three prime. Everything regained, we might say. A robe, a ring, shoes. This is restoration. He's a thrown away person. He's, he's exploited his inheritance. But the father welcomes him back and makes him not a hired hand. He restores him as a son fully. And two, goods and joyful celebration. One, a son is found. My son was dead and is alive. Now look at the prime in the, the, the primary and the prime comparison. Number one, a son is lost. One prime, son is found. Two, goods wasted. Two prime, goods used. We're going to kill a fatted calf. We're going to give him a ring, and so forth and so on. Three, everything lost. Three prime, everything gained. Four, the great sin. Four, the great repentance. Five, total rejection. No one's taking care of him. He's at the lowest possible place. Five prime, totally accepted by his father. And six, change of mind. Six, the initial repentance. Now, the point of these devices is to show the reader, just like the texture of music or a language, you don't catch it all. But this should show you some of the otherworldly nature of your Bible. Luke is full of these chiasmus. In fact, the beginning section in 14 all the way through 16 is a huge one. 
And it takes a lot of study and a lot of time and care to see it. The average reader will never see it. This is why you need to study your scripture carefully and slowly and look for things and circle repetitions and draw lines when you connect the dots, so to speak, so you can start to see these things. Because the audience didn't hear this, obviously. But Luke, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, wrote it in such a fashion that even in layers we don't see, there's a very powerful message. The point of a chiasm is always the middle. Here, six and six prime, the way we've enumerated it. A change of mind and repentance. That's what the story is about. There are 12 stanzas. They're each an inverted parallel. He left. He returned. He's unrepentant. He's repentant. He digresses to be a pig farmer. He's an honored son. He eats nothing. He feeds on the fatted calf. He's dying. And now he's alive. And that segues us into the second son, verse 25. Remember chapter 15, 1, a man had two sons. We looked at prodigal number one. Let's look at prodigal number two today. Now, the older son was in the field. And when he came to, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. Now, the older son in verse 25 and 26 is, don't miss the beauty and the craft of the writing. A man had an older son. He's in the field. He's working. As I mentioned, remember there's layers of tension in these stories. You feel the tension. And the audience, it, it, this audience will be on a roller coaster of emotions. It's like uh, you're watching a very suspenseful movie or reading a book. You can't quit turning the pages. What's going to happen next? And each layer of the story, the audience has put off balance about what's going on and what's going to happen. And so now we have the older son coming in. That They're chewing their proverbial fingernails. What's going to happen now when he sees his younger brother has been restored, the fatted calf killed, and a party is in motion, and the listeners are on the edge of the seat. At the top level, Jesus is speaking in large to the pharisaical ear, the ear that's legalistic, the ear that doesn't see themselves like that prodigal that went away and squandered his father's riches and insulted his dad and lived loosely and was feeding pigs and now comes home begging for a job. I'm not that way. And many people would say, I've never done anything like that. I've been the good child. I've been the compliant son or daughter. And that's precisely where Jesus will take the story. Perhaps the older son has been working hard all day. He's a good, obedient son. Perhaps the tension we're to see is that no one has told him. Why does he have to find out this way? Perhaps he's not on best terms with the father, which is what I think. And I think the language we'll see come out of him in a moment shows that he doesn't, it's not that he doesn't like his father, he detests his father. Now the word for music here is the word symphonia. And the word for dancing is the Greek word choros. These words are only found here in the entire New Testament. They only occur one time in the Bible, and here they are. The symphonia and the choros. And it would be the Hebrew celebration. A symphony, obviously, music. You will hear music at a distance. But the choros is the idea of either stomping or clapping. And if you've ever watched any Hebrew dancing, there's a lot of both. And so in antiquity, uh, as he's coming in from, let's say, his, his shift, his working in the field, the vineyard, the, with the animals, whatever he's done that day, he comes in and he hears and sees. Now, in the first century, when you kill a fatted calf, it's not like the Old West where you put it on a big spit and some person has to turn it once in a while. 
In the Old Testament, it was quartered and sectioned, and each of that went to a home where someone would cook it in an oven. So it, it's an all-day preparation. It's not like we do barbecues. The food's done basically when you come. You grill the burgers and you're ready to eat. Everyone joins in in the preparation. He's a landowner. He's a master. He has lots of people working for him. He's probably in a village or a compound. They're killing a huge fatted calf. This is going to feed a lot of people. So we section up the meal. We send it out. And people start playing the music right away. Let's get together and play. So this is an all-day affair. It'll go way into the evening, way late at night. They'll be dancing and singing and partying and eating and enjoying this meal. So as he comes home, at probably at dusk, let's say, he hears that. And what is interesting in verse 26, the older son summoned one of the servants and began inquiring. And this gives us a lot of insight on the older brother. If you were this older brother, wouldn't you sort of drop your gear as it were, wash your hands as it were, and go join the party? What's going on? Why does he call a younger servant? And the word here is diminutive. It really means a young boy. He's not even employed as a servant or a laborer. He's one of the little kids that hangs around the compound. He's a child of someone in the village or in the master's household. And again, it creates a tension in the Middle Eastern culture. What this son should have done is come home and stepped into his role as the firstborn, which was to be the host. The master can't do everything. He can't be everywhere at one place at one time. So what does the firstborn do? He steps in that role for his father on his father's behalf. It's just like when the first lady goes places or the vice president goes places, the president can't be everywhere all the time, but his number one, number two person can be, and that's the role of the firstborn son in the ancient culture. He should be greeting and welcoming people and say, we're so glad you've come to join us in this celebration. But the text says, no, he covertly asked this young boy, what is going on? The phrase begin inquiring is he's asking a lot of questions, we might say. Verse 27, the young boy said to him, your brother has come, your father has killed the fatted calf because he's received him back safe and sound. Now, there's a staccato of answers that would mirror, most likely, the questions the older brother had asked. And we might read it this way. Your brother's come, your father's killed, he's safe and sound. So it's a very quick response to each one of them. The phrase for safe and sound is hugenio. Hugenio, we bring into English, hygiene. He's, he's safe, he's whole. He's in good shape, we might say. And I think there's a hint here that speaks to the audience that your, good, your, your younger prodigal brother is safe and sound, translated, he's saved. That's what the audience is supposed to hear. He repented. He came back. Your father welcomed him, put the ring, the robe, the sandals on him. He welcomed him home, killed the fatted calf because he's saved. He's not just saved from the world and from his sin, but he's now saved in right relationship with his father. Well, the older son's response, unfortunately, is great anger. Verse 29. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have, given, and yet you have never given me a goat 
so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Now, after the boy explains the celebration, the older son is angry. He doesn't join in. And the second part of verse 28, the father is going to come after pleading. Don't miss the parallels. The father goes out and runs to meet the first prodigal, the younger son. Now, when the older son is angry, he goes to him. Both of these things against the grain of the Middle Eastern culture of what a father would do. Now, we need to step back a bit and look at the parable from a number of important observations. Uh, the one reason the older son has been notified this way, again, is to create tension for the listener. Um, we know if we read the story up to the point of verse 27, the report has happened. But verse 28, we learn of his anger. The story hasn't introduced the father yet. So the first century, first century listener is going, they're, they're, they're squirming. They're like in a fetal position. They're on the edge of their seats with the suspense novel, the story going, what in the world is going to happen? He's not at his station being the firstborn son. He should be out there helping his family, his father, representing his generous father for killing the fatted calf and welcoming home his son. And so the father has to go look for him. To say it another way, let me introduce you to the older prodigal. Number one, he addresses him without a title. He says in verse 29, look. He's already violated every conscionable young man and father in the first century. Look in your Bible at verse 12 of Luke 15. When the younger son is going to uh, go on his squandering escapade, even he comes to him and calls him father. See it? Look at verse 18. After he has sinned, he begins to rehearse this speech he will give to his father upon his return. And he says what? Father, I have sinned. In verse 21, when he finally meets his father, who's run to the edge of the property, let's say, to meet him, he says, Father, I have sinned. But in verse 29, the older elder prodigal, look! And it's hard for us to get there because we don't live in that world. But the hairs on the back of that first century audience, they're on edge. You don't speak to your father that way. You always address him by his proper title. I had, uh, like all of us, two sets of grandparents. I was, very, I was the youngest of three. Um, my uh, paternal grandparents, my dad's uh, mom and dad, were a very hard case uh, uh, lived in Ford City, Pennsylvania, very poor, very impoverished. And my grandmother, Easley, was a very, very tough, ironed woman. And you did not call her grandma, you called her grandmother. Or you'd be in big trouble. Grandmother. And the other grandma, my mom's mom, you could call her anything and she just loved you. But you better call grandmother Easley grandmother. Or you would, you know, we went there once, and it was a good thing we only went there once, in my opinion. You get the picture. Uh, it would be a huge insult to call grandmother easily Grams or Grammy or how you doing, Grandma. Uh, you would see stars soon after that from that German blood of hers. This is an insult to call him. Look! Number two, the insult is in public. 
There are people around who have assembled for this, from, from both the compound that belongs to the Father's control of whatever his business is, as well as those who have come in from earshot, and he has insulted them. Very different than the younger son who demanded his share from his father. Thirdly, the anger reveals um, something deeper about him. And one of the things it reveals is the term he uses for, I've been serving you clearly. What he's saying is, I feel like the slave. And a lot of firstborn uh, adults will, will identify with that. You know, I had to do stuff that my younger siblings never had to do. And we all overparent the first child. Get over it. Uh, you know, we just do. We're bad parents. We're learning how to parent. And we overparent our firstborn child. And the firstborn, if he or she's compliant, will often look at his or her siblings going, they have it so easy compared to me. They had such easy ride. I had to do so many things they didn't have to do. Well, it's the same in the first century. What he's saying is, I feel like a stinking slave. I've worked for you. I've never broken a command or a rule you asked me. I've done everything you've told me to do. And this is what happens so he's insulting his father. Fourth, he's accusing his father of favoritism. He gets a calf. I've never even got a goat. The fatted calf is set aside for a full calendar year for probably the Day of Atonement. A goat could be used for any celebration. You'd probably, you'd probably kill a goat for a wedding. We might think of a bar mitzvah today. You might kill a goat for a bar mitzvah in the early ancient world, but you didn't kill a fatted calf. Fifth, he insults the father's house. He's declaring that he's not part of the family. Look what he says. You've never given me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. The moment he does this, he's no different than the younger son. No, no, you're part of a family. This business has been established for you two boys and your wives whom you will marry and their children and their children's children. This is why I have done all this in antiquity so that you will be taken care of, I will have a livelihood, and so will you and your family and be greatly blessed. And when he says, you've never given me a goat for my friends, he's done the same exact thing the younger son has done by saying, I want out of here. Give me my share of the inheritance. He's done it in a little, let's say, cleaner way, but the intent and the heart are just the same. One scholar of antiquity writes, the older son was the hypocritical saint because he hid his feelings in his heart and hated his father while yet at home. He denies any relationship with his brother, this son of yours. But the younger brother is the honorable sinner because he repented and returned. Six, he's no different than the younger brother. The motives are just the same. The outward actions are very different, but they are no different. He'd rather celebrate with his friends with a goat than celebrate with his father and his younger brother who's alive, who was thought dead and has been brought back to life, who was lost and is found. Seven, he attacks and insults the younger brother. Look at verse 30. He devoured your life. Remember last week I talked about give me my share of the inheritance. The word is bios there. It has the idea of that which sustains life. It's not just money, giving my share of the inheritance after my uncle or father dies, giving me my portion of it coming to me. The idea in antiquity was this money wasn't just money to spend. This was to sustain your livelihood. And by asking the father for that, he has insulted him 
And he's basically saying, I wish you were dead. And that's the wordplay of bios. And the older brother picks up on this, verse 30. He's devoured your life. He squandered that which you had worked so hard for to sustain your life in old age as well as ours in the future. And the allegation goes further to he says he's devoured on prostitutes. Most authors and scholars of antiquity and current research don't know where this comes from. Nothing in the storyline Jesus has given talks about him uh, with loose living engaging with prostitutes. Many believe it's a conjecture and an insult on the older brother's part. Kenneth Bailey suggests the older brother is doing this so that he would be, uh, so the younger brother would be killed under the, the Levitical law in Deuteronomy 21, which is a good possibility. Well, what does the audience expect? All that aside, what's the audience expect with this older brother's outburst to his father? Number one, a furious father. A raging father. At most, he would punish him. At least he would ignore him. And certainly he would express strong displeasure in whatever he did. He would tell him what for. Verse 31, the father's response. And he said to him, my child, you've always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost and has been found. There's no wrath, but rather an outpouring of love from the Father. It's, again, one of these offsetting things of the parable. You've got to sit in that first century dirt for a minute and think about it. This guy, he's going to take his son by the shirt collar and give him what for? My child. No, 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 no. At least rage at him a little while. My child, my child. The address would set the audience back. And I think they'd lean back in their chair and cover their seat and cover their mouth going, what kind of man is this that would do this? Anyone who has been hurt by a child, um, when some, many of you young couples have little babies and those little babies think they, they worship you and they're so sweet and cuddly and kind and, and there's nothing better when you come home that your son or daughter is happy to see you as a daddy or a mommy, whatever it is. And, and when they get a little older, about two, three, four, whatever the age happens, something happens that day and your son or daughter says, I hate you, mommy. I hate you, mommy. And says other things and runs off into the room and you just melt in a pile and you call your husband, he hates me, he hates me, he hates me. And you go through therapy. I mean, you know, this, this child has said, I hate you. It's going to happen. And it gets so much more joyful in the teen years. <laughs> My mentor often told me, grandchildren are God's reward for not killing your teenage children. <laughs> Keep that in mind. This father would be deeply wounded. Ibrahim Said, a Middle Eastern scholar, writes, the father's love knows no weariness and makes the most gracious announcement. Son. Now, your Bibles all say son. But literally, it's the word tecton or child. Euos is the word for son, the son of God, euos. Tecton is diminutive, it's for little one. 
It'd be the difference of saying, son, come over here, or my son, my child. My father's dead. I'm still his little boy. I'll always be his little boy. My son, my child. Not son, not look here, you. Who are you to say this to me? I'm your father, for goodness sakes. And backhand him metaphorically across the village. My child, my child. You know, you can be lost right at home. You can have been raised in a phenomenal home of, of mother and father who love Christ, albeit imperfectly, but a great mother and father who love Christ, and you can be lost right at home. And that's the picture we have of the prodigal. The father calls him, my child, you've always been with me in all that I have. In my Bible, the words all are underlined. All that is mine is yours. It's all here. What's he saying? He went off. Yes, he did his escapades. Son, my son, my child, you're the heir. You are the heir. It's all yours. But your brother was dead and lost. We've got to celebrate that he came back home. Don't you see? I love you the same way I love him. The Pharisees would hear something like this. Older son, you never gave me a kid. Father, all that I have is yours. Older son, yes, I own everything, but I still can't have a party and celebration with my friends. Father, oh, I see. You want me dead too. The parable doesn't go that far, but that's where the Hebrew mind went. He's no different than the brother, younger brother. In fact, the parable has come full circle. The older prodigal, in some regard, is worse than the younger prodigal. I've done it all right. I've been here. I've been a stinking slave. You've never given me a goat for my friends. All the venom came out. He feels the same way the younger son did. He just was on the outward side compliant, inwardly rebellious and hateful of his father. You don't speak to a father like this. You know, that's the way the older son spoke. And the audience would get it. Both sons wanted their father dead. Verse 32, he appeals to the son, it's time to rejoice. Now what I find compelling even more about the father, the way Jesus tells the story is, even though his son makes this complaint, and we have to see it in some level public or with ears around it, even though he makes this complaint, it will not snub the celebration. It will not stop what is already in motion. The father is going to celebrate. Verse 32, this brother of yours. And it's a very intentional joust. This son of yours. No, this brother of yours. He's your brother for goodness sakes. Most English translations, verse 32, render, but we had to celebrate. And there's a very good case linguistically and in the context to read it this way. But you have to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and now lives, was lost and has been found. The father does not apologize. And in antiquity, and I would say to some level applicable for a good godly father today, 
A father does not have to apologize, much less explain himself. A good godly father in that culture and context was viewed differently than today. Today we've been emasculated and thrown aside and disregarded and vilified in every form and function of literature, media, and the university. Men are idiots. In that culture, in that time, a good godly father was respected, appreciated, esteemed. He didn't smart off to your father. He didn't explain his actions to you. He doesn't have to apologize to you. He doesn't have to pat you on the hand and say, my son, my son, all that I have is yours. He doesn't have to do that in the first century. But this father is depicted as a mind-blowing father for that audience. No father does that. <laughs> yes, there is one that does that. I want you to step back and see five themes. Number one, sin. Here we have the legalist versus the licentious. The licentious would be the young prodigal that goes off and squanders all that the father had given him. Whatever loose living is to be defined by the parable, we do not know. But we have the legalist who is just as sinful as the licentious son. You can, on the outward, look like a really good person checking the boxes and being compliant, and the heart is wicked and deceitful and legalistically in great sin. I like to define legalism as any time we try to impose our spiritual parameters on another person. And be careful, because we want to help one another grow and mature in faith. But when I smugly look at someone else's life, and they have trouble, and I go, well, if they would do this, and they would do that, they wouldn't be that way. You know what the title of every Christian book really, really every book, you know what the title of every book really is? The real title of every book is, How to Be More Like Me. This is my life, read my book, How to Be More Like Me. Some of it's good, no question. I'm not trying to throw it all out. Hear me carefully. But in a legalist view, if you do this, if you, and well, well no, no wonder you're having that trouble because you're not doing this. That's just as insidious as the person who goes out and lives a licentious lifestyle the way God's economy looks at sin. Secondly, we see repentance as a theme. We see the one who is willing to come hit bottom, we might say, and then repent and come back to his father. But what we don't see is how the older son will respond. One, if he keeps to the system of following the Pharisaic law, which is the primary audience for the Old Testament, uh, for the first century Pharisee. You know, you keep the law, you're Pharisees, you rule the law, you, you check the boxes, you do all the outward things right, inside you're full of dead men's bones. You ingratiate yourself on widows. You take advantage of the people who are most susceptible to you. But outside, it all looks good and clean and perfect, but you are insidious in your legalism. Thirdly, we see grace from the offended father. I have said it many times. I hope you hear it so well that you don't even think twice about spouting the words out yourself. Grace is undeserved favor in the face of deserved wrath. Grace isn't just undeserved favor. That is a hollow definition. Mercy is undeserved favor. When your kids don't deserve something and you give them something anyway. Grace is undeserved favor in the face of deserved wrath. The father could have 
metaphorically, literally backhanded this older son. He could have disowned. He could have calcified himself when that younger brother came back and walked in the house and told his servants, do not let him on the compound. And he'd have been with him full rights to the father. With this older son's outburst and anger and the accusations of favoritism, he could have said to him, you are no longer a son of mine. Everything is mine. He would have been in full rights to do that. Undeserved favor in the face of deserved wrath. And this would rock their world to hear these words. And the tension is going all over the map with this story. I hope you're starting to get the sense of why this story is so timeless and so powerful and so pervasive in its use. Even Rembrandt to spend four some years doing that rendering that you see image on the wall there. Fourth, we see joy in finding the loss. And everybody in the world understands you lose something of value, you find it, you're happy. I had a friend in grad school, he's always losing his watch, his keys, his wallet. Always. Always. It was, it was crazy. We lived in an environment where people left their briefcases, their wallets, their keys, just spread out on the library and school there. And he would forever lose. I, we wanted to get him one of those clap it things to put on his, you know, so he could find his stuff. Because he was always losing them. I said, John, put it all in the same pocket. That's what I do. Put them all in the same pocket of your briefcase every single time. And never, couldn't do it. He just couldn't do it. To this day, the man's 57. He can't find his keys, his, his wallet for, for love or money. And every time he does, oh, I found it, I found it, I found it. I guess he gets celebrate every day, you know. Uh, joy in finding what you've lost. It's a, it's a, as Lloyd said so beautifully a couple of weeks ago, there's something innate with finding something you lost. And that's a picture God gives us of those who are dead, of those who are lost. We found them. They came back. The neck, the neck, the kisses, the hugging. He's backing his son. I've got him back. Fifth, we see sonship. Both are sons. Both have tipped their hand. The younger son, I'll be a hired hand. I'll be a servant. Or, put it harshly, I'll be a slave. The older son says, I'm no better than a slave around here. So, all the themes are seen in both sons. What do we see about Christ's work for the sinner in the parable? Number one, we have a father who's left the house to come out to meet the younger son. The father who's left the party to go find his son who's unwilling to join the festivities for his younger brother. So we have a father on the move, which is contrary to, again, the first century mind. The father came seeking sinners parallel, Jesus Christ has left the Father to come seek sinners. He's left the glory of heaven when he could be a wrathful, vengeful God. He's left that context to seek out the likes of you and me. You may remember Luke 15 began with the Pharisees and some other religious leaders grumbling because Jesus is hanging out with and eating dinners with sinners, with Gentiles, so Luke 15 begins with grumbling legalists who complain about Jesus' reception of sinners. And Luke 15 ends with an angry legalistic son because he's thrown a party of a meal for his younger son. Luke 15 began with a meal with sinners. Luke 15 concludes with a meal with a sinner received. And the first part, they're grumbling. And the last part, many are celebrating. But the grumbler is still in the background. So what? 
The so what of this story, I believe, is that God the Father wants sons, not servants. He doesn't want slaves. Now, we understand the New Testament word for doulos and slavery, and some may have read some books about that, and I understand that. That's not where I'm going here. What Jesus is saying here is the Father doesn't want just servants who do the right thing and have enslaved themselves for service and internally are angry at God because they have to do the right thing the right way all the time. He wants sons. He wants them to join in the celebration. He wants them to be part of the family. He wants them to know everything I have is yours. I've done all this from creation to redemption. I've done it all for you, my children. What more could I do for you to show you I love you and I want you to be my sons and my daughters than to die for you and to forgive your sins again and 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 again when I could have backhanded you into hell. Because I don't want servants and slaves. I want sons. And it's a universal picture that everyone understands in antiquity and today. The question and the parable is left hanging. And if we showed you the chiasm of the entire chapter 15, you would have one prime missing at the bottom. Let's say you had 1 to 20. 1 prime, 2, 2 prime. You get down to 19, 19 prime, 20 no 20 prime. The structure's missing. The song didn't end. It stopped abruptly. There was a screeching halt. There was no closure to the piece of music. The last page of the book wasn't written. Cindy and I have very different opinions about movies, which comes as no surprise to any married couple. You, you sort of you, you agree on things when you're early in your dating and marriage. Oh, I like those movies. After a year, you, you hate each other's movies, and you start watching movies separately. It's the way it works in our home, at least. Once in a while, they coalesce, but usually guy films, chick films, never the twain shall meet for good reason. And so you go through all that. When, when you come to this story, one of the reasons Cindy hates the kind of films I like is a lot of times they don't have closure. They have an angst to the ending. It's a complex story, and I love that. And she says, I just want to be entertained and laugh and have a happy ending. And, oh, no, man, this is a great story. And when a story doesn't end and have an ending, I think, well, just, just make one up then. If you don't like the fact that it doesn't, and some of these DVDs you can rent now, you actually have alternate endings. I've never actually gone through all that, but I guess you can waste even more time looking at alternate endings, which to me is kind of, it's just a way to sell a product, right? I mean, why don't you tell us a story? Jesus leaves you with an open question. Very deliberately, very intentionally. And the question is, what kind of prodigal are you? Because we're all prodigals. Yeah, it's easy to pick on the obvious prodigal who goes off and squanders and disrespects and loose living and blows his money and comes home begging. It's easy to look at that prodigal we're all prodigals in here because we are critical of others. We harbor lust and greed in our hearts. We're engaged in immorality. We live on the fringe of things we know we're not supposed to do, but outwardly we look good. We judge others for their life and consequences. Well, the reason you're, I, I know why you're in such trouble because, mm-hmm, and we know how to, how to read everybody else. That's the legalist. 
We're all prodigals. But God loves his wayward children all. William Arndt is an extraordinary Greek scholar of the 1800s, wrote voluminous volumes of books in Greek in the language, and he calls this section the Evangelium Evangelico, or the gospel within the gospel. I love that. The story of the prodigal is the gospel within the gospel. And if you're here today, no matter how you were raised or bred or what church you grew up in, you must come to a place that you know that you know that you know that you know where you will spend all eternity. And this story ends hanging. Have you trusted in Christ? Or are you the angry or licensed prodigal still doing his or her own thing? Jesus Christ lived, died, was buried, came back from the dead. And any and all who trust in him, he gives eternal life. Here we have two pictures, a licentious prodigal, a legalistic prodigal. At the cross, we have two prodigals. We have one that says, may I be with you in paradise today. He did nothing wrong. We have one that says, if you're God, get me off of this cross. Save yourself and us with you. We have Jacob and Esau, the two prodigals. We have Cain and Abel, the two prodigals. One dutifully obeying, one angry enough to kill his brother out of spite and contempt. All of us are prodigals. One beats his chest humbly and says, be merciful to me, the sinner. One says, remember me when you come into paradise. One says to him, I have nothing to offer. I'm a sinful man. Forgive me. And he picks that son up, that daughter up, and says, you're mine. Jesus said, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Hear his word, believe in him, you're given eternal life. He lived, died, was buried, came back from the dead, and any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation are guaranteed the promise of eternal life. It's the most incredible offer ever given because this Father's not angry at you. He loves you.